Hello, welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Katherine Troyer, and I'm so excited to be joined once again by Tony Tresca. Hey there. This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic, as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so excited to have you join us for our episode over 1922's Nosferatu. Yeah, a 100-year-old film we're doing here. A black and white, German, silent creature film. Yeah, it's very, very different from anything else we've done. And that's kind of exciting to, to get to do something a little different. I do want to say, so the Snowsferatu, comma, eine Symphony des Grauens, and I slaughtered German even though that's my language, but, but I like the fact that it's a symphony of horror because I think that's such a beautiful and accurate description of, of what we watched. The symphony is truly another character. The, it's a in true silent film fashion. I think my favorite character of this film was definitely the orchestration. <laughs> it was it. The film begins with a very classical overture to which my partner groaned when the overture <laughs> uh, came on the screen. But I was like, no, we get to listen to the musicians play, and boy, howdy, can they play! And it was just spooky. I'm like. You can you really get to hear an early attempt at what kind of a horror score would really sound like. Um, and it's so involved. It's so it's so percussive. It uses such interesting dissonance and minor chordage throughout. And it takes that this melody and just plays with it in so many different ways throughout and changes it just like Nosferatu changes. Oh, uh. I would love. <laughs> love love to see a version of Nosferatu where it's on a screen and then it's being played by a live orchestra that's so funny that you said that I looked as I was watching the film I turned to my partner and I said I know you're not gonna I don't know how you're gonna feel about this but if there is a live version of this Nosferatu I want to go see it with the orchestra because I was like I feel like like a bit like think of just thinking through like a concert ramp ramp yeah. what's it called I don't know what we're doing. An organ. An organ. (laughs) Hearing like a big, powerful organ playing throughout some of the... Come on, you didn't know the... When I'm just like throwing my hands down and going... (laughs) Uh, For those of you, which is all of you who can't see this, Tony, like your hands were even like... That's not even how you hold them over. It's like you've never touched an organ or a piano in your entire life. It was like a T-Rex kind of trying to play. It really was. So sorry that I didn't pick up on on the universal symbol for organ. But yes, it would be be really neat. And I I have the DVD of uh, Steven Spielberg's E.T. and there's like a special thing on there where it's it's Williams playing with an orchestra while the film is playing and you can kind of watch it. And I just like, first off, that would be the dream. But but there's I think there'd just be something really neat about getting to sort of experience the the symphony, this character, you know, in this like real in the moment sort of way. And so that would be really neat. Do you want to give us 
there's not a t- terrible ton of, of plot here, but do you uh, want to, just for those who haven't seen Nosferatu, give them a little bit of a example of what this exciting film is about? Yeah, so this German real estate agent named Hutter, he's got an assignment from his boss to go and sell the house across the street from him to this count named Count Orlock. So Hutter has to travel via, across the sea to go to this count and try to convince him to sell in the house. But when he shows up to this count's house in Transylvania, this guy's a bit of a weird character. He really, really attracted to blood when Hunter uh, cuts his finger. And then when he sees a picture of his wife's gorgeous neck, uh, Count Orlock decides to buy the property across the street from him right away. Gasp. Uh, and gasp, gasp. And so then uh, Hunter is kind of like is putting it together that, hey, maybe this Count Orlock character is not just a human being. Maybe he's a super weird vampire. And so now it becomes a race against time, like where they get on this ship and they're trying to, uh, he's trying to like prevent, to get there before Orlock can. But, and then when he arrives in the town, he starts killing a whole bunch of people. The doctors think it's plague and it's a type of plague, a vampire plague. And that's Nosferatu. If people are familiar with Bram Stoker's Dracula, you may have several questions like, who's Hutter <laughs> and right. and what happened to, to Jonathan Harker or and what happened to Dracula? <laughs> yeah, who's this what, Count Orlock? <laughs> I didn't even go there. Yes. What, what happened to Dracula? Where's Van Helsing? Because this is, there's a lot less like proactive hunting in, in this film. Uh, it's a lot more of Hutter having which what for us are like really obvious clues where right where he's like i have a couple mosquito bites you know and you're like come on yeah uh or when he finds orlock in the coffin and he you know it's just like oh i wonder what's happening uh so there's he's like oh this guy's <laughs> sleeping i guess down here. yeah that's, and so I mean, that's a <laughs> he was definitely like scared but he also like you know didn't like whip out the stake immediately so there there's a lot of ways in which this film takes the the familiar conventions of Dracula, but then just kind of runs its its own way. In particularly, I think one of the most important ways that this film does its its thing uh, is is how it depicts the scene between Ellen and an Orlock, which we'll we'll talk about, I'm sure, more later, because that's kind of one of the most important parts of the film. But it, oh, it also is interesting. It translates a lot of it's in a German town, which is the I mean, this is an unauthorized adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula text, which is interesting in and of itself that some German guy was just like, I really want to make this Dracula film. And so just kind of change things. So I was trying to look into it a little bit more and see if it was like he was changing these elements just because like he didn't want to get copyright or like the the early 19th century equivalent of copyright, yeah. I suppose. But it doesn't really seem that that was the case because in the intertitles of the original film, it says inspired by Brahms uh, Stoker's Dracula. So it doesn't really seem like it was done deliberately to distance it from the text or to avoid that copyright or whatever. And it, they didn't, right? Avoid no, copyright. They didn't. <laughs> it was no, it was still like a big problem uh, yes. that plagued the film after it was basically just like illegally unauthorized released. And so yeah. I-, I think then it is really interesting when thinking about those changes because they didn't have to make the changes, but no. they did. And I 
a lot seems like the general consensus is a lot of the the changes were to make it more appealing to the German audience to whom this film would have been premiering at the time, like that change from England to Germany, the change in the time period to make it a little bit to put a little bit more distance between I think that present Germany and uh, where the film is set. And I think it also complicates things in terms of, like, this is 1922 Germany, and I think some of the, like, depictions of Count Orlok definitely kind of, I was getting a little bit of, like, anti-Semitic-y kind of tropes from the depiction of of the future. And if you do a deep, if you do a deep, deep dive on the internet, you can find where people have pointed out that in in one of the letters between Nosferatu and the agent he's working with in Germany not Hutter the the person who is Hutter's boss right. you know someone has frozen a frame on on what is literally a, like a second long uh, image and shown that there is what looks like a swastika in one of the symbols and you know I don't I don't know if if that was just because there's a whole bunch of made up symbols, right? So and then right, the swastika right. at one time was not a symbol that was associated with with Nazis. It was it was an indigenous symbol, right? That anyone could have found if they were just looking in texts or an inverted version of an indigenous symbol. So you know, so there is definitely we we have to keep in mind that this is a film that is is coming out in 1922 Germany, and and you're absolutely correct that the way that Orlock is depicted with sort of his elongated some of his elongated features and some of his sort of like rat like appearance yeah. elements i mean there there is 100% nazi propaganda videos coming out uh in the 30s and 40s that are explicitly making connections and drawing images of the jewish people that are very similar to how orlock looks and and i also think another like reason i think that definitely supports that kind of like nosferatu as like a figure to project anti-Semitism onto is particularly strengthened by the the character's association within the film to rats itself and the bringing of this disease and plague into this German town. I think that definitely falls in line with a lot of the stereotyping around kind of like Jewish immigrants and people coming into Germany at the time. And so I think that particular plot element in association with the Nosferatu Count Orlok character is also particularly telling. Although I do want to point out that there are some scholars who push back against uh, anti-Semitic reading of the film because uh, in particular, writer Kevin Jackson noted that F.W. Murnau, who was the film's director, had a lot of Jewish associates. There was actually Jewish actors who worked in this very film. The actor who plays Nock was Jewish. Uh, and there are some uh, this there are some claims that also like this film's director could have possibly been gay and would have made him more sympathetic to the treatment of marginalized groups within Germany's mm-hmm. and that the other in particular who knows Bratu stands into. But that the director being gay is not confirmed. That was right, from right. a that that's from a text that has many other discrepancies and uh, in it. And so it's not exactly that that claim that the director is gay is taken from a text that. Eh, there is perhaps some questions still about it, but and it's interesting. The larger stuff still stands. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned that the the actor who played Knocker in German would be like Knock, right? Knock, right? But that you mentioned that the actor was Jewish because that is one character that is in some ways depicted as a more traditionally anti-Semitic portrayal of of Jewish individuals, right? So greedy and sort of superstitious, um, right? And 
quote unkempt, right? Because because of of how their their body hair works, right, and things like that, and culturally speaking. And so, there there are ways that this film, I think, serves serves as a sort of looking glass, right? You can see what you want to see, and and I think that's really important to keep in mind in in like early and even post World War II German horror, right? Because the Nazi shadow casts long and wide, and you have to you know think about the fact that it is always there. But yeah. is it necessarily there, there in the text? And and I think this is a good example of, of not knowing entirely where it's sure. I, I want to bring in a couple other sources because unsurprisingly, with 100 years of, of legacy, Nosferatu has had some stuff written about it. I know that people have had time to yeah. get to the publication. Yeah, isn't get that their, wild? Get their papers out. Yeah, yeah no matter how <laughs> slow the academic process is for publication, and it is gosh darn slow. At least it's not a hundred years slow. So you know that's <laughs> that's a saving grace. And and like I said, there's tons and tons of scholarship. But I I wanted to just kind of reference a couple books that I are looking particularly at the vampire and and the legacy of Nosferatu. The first book is by Jorg Falcha, sorry, and for mis- <laughs> for slaughtering that name. And the book is called Blood Obsession, Vampire, Serial Murder, and the Popular Imagination. And what I found really interesting about this particular book is, you know, he's he's tracing through and he wants to like examine why is it that vampires fascinate the human imagination and the ways that it appeals to the audience because of an interdependency of the sort of like structures that connect in the genre where we're constantly like being afraid of, but also sort of in awe of the vampire. But what I thought was was interesting is that he asks the question of like, for the audience of a film like Nosferatu, where would they have gotten their information about vampires? Because we have gotten our information from every vampire movie that's been made, of which there are just countless. And I thought it was interesting that he kind of reminded readers that that they would have seen theatrical adaptations of Dracula. They may have read the book. They would have seen versions of the vampire in the like theater of the macabre and right. and the, you know, specifically the the French theater who I can't ever pronounce that phrase correctly. They would have seen it in woodcuts and book illustrations. And so although Nosferatu is generally considered the first full-fledged cinematic treatment of the vampire, audiences wouldn't have been like a vampire. What is a vampire? I don't even understand. There, there would have been this heritage culturally, but also literary, artistically, theatrically. And I think that's really important for understanding how audiences would have seen Nosferatu in 1922. In I guess in many ways, it would have been like the culmination of a lot of these different like tropes and story elements and like putting together like all these bits and pieces of like information they've gathered about vampires into this one text which is so interesting because i'm like it's interesting that even a hundred years ago it was the vampires were not exactly this like new creature it was like uh, no people knew what it was this was just the first time it had been fully translated into like a 90 minute film version yeah because the first celluloid vampire according to stacy abbott in the book celluloid vampires life after death in the modern world fitting title it is yeah it's an appropriate title she says that the first celluloid vampire is actually back in 1896 with george malaise who you may know from trip to the moon and and so he gives us a vampire i mean like he's making some of the earliest films and he's giving us one on on vampires so we've had them almost from the very start of cinematic history. And I thought, I liked how you said 
this idea that it was the culmination because it's really strange because for audiences in 1922, it would have been the sort of the culmination of all the little pieces of information they have. And for us, it's the foundation, right, right. Of, of everything that, that we understand about cinematic vampires. So it's really interesting how it's central to both, but in groups of people, but in very specifically different ways. Yeah, Roger Ebert's review of the of this film, he talks about how it's really interesting to view this figure devoid of all of the tropes and the beating to death of that we modern audiences have since had of vampires, of the rehashing of these tropes, the reusing of this iconography, of these similar types of shots, of this kind of establishment of the vampire. But this film is is that seminal text in which cinematically at least most inspiration for vampires can really be kind of like pointed to or a lot of and i think just a lot of the tropic elements of the vampire are just like ever present within this film and abbott says that one of the things she finds really interesting about this film is that both dracula and and nosferatu are texts that are interested in texts right so nosferatu has the you know we're seeing the letters and the best title of a book ever, The Of Spirits, Terrible Ghosts, Magics, and The Seven Deadly Sins. <laughs> yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, I, I liked how small the book was. I feel like if I would write a book about that many things, it would just be so long. But it was like this really slim little novel that just happened, or not novel book, that happened to have all the answers that Hutter and Ellen needed. But we we have the book, we have the letters, and, and many other things. And of course, Dracula is, is a epistolary form. So what Abbott says that I think is really fascinating is she says that Count Orlock in Murnau's film is an embodiment of technology, his vampirism emerging through the film filmic process itself. And then she says that she she argues that in Nosferatu, you can see the ways that 19th century technologies bridged the gap between the scientific and the supernatural and how that was built into Nosferatu. And I think that's that's interesting because there's you know, we have a lot of like spirit photography happening in around this time, you know, where people are taking photos of, of what they think are like ectoplasm and, yeah. and other things. And like they're treating it as a science that they're using, quote, technology for. That's what I definitely was one of the things I wanted to talk about was like the interesting ways in which like the academic or are intertwined with like the horrifying as particularly in this film. Yeah. Count Orlock is definitely shown as being a more well-read, academic, high-minded individual who, like, when you say all those words to a modern audience, you're like, oh, respected, probably yes. wealthy, affluent, community member, productive person of society. But it's interesting to think about how in 1922, those same kind of things were being ascribed to this monstrous figure, this like isolated person who sought, who wrote everything down and was doing all this research and had all these books and was learning so much. I thought, I just thought that was interesting. Shifted, I think, a little bit in terms of which creatures and figures are the most horrifying. Yeah. And, and I, I think it's interesting how the film constantly seeks to disrupt our, our sense of of how we define certain things, right? Yeah. Um. One of the the other things that 
that lots of people talk about in this film or about this film is the realism of the setting, the realism. I mean, you know, he's actually filming out and and he's doing these long shots so that he can, we yeah. can see all of these expanses in these regions. You know, we have some some real locations. And, and this is a sharp departure from films like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which are German expressionism, which is right, right at the same time. And Nosferatu was both praised, at, but mainly at the time originally criticized for, for having this very realistic, element between the two. And Abbott argues that that actually allows us to think about the idea of horror through the eruption of the fantastic within a realistic setting. The horror coming emerging from like a seemingly ordinary setting. I think that would really probably speak very true to a lot of the German audiences coming off of surprising horrors of world of the first world war coming from like the economic problems within like different parts of their culture and then emerging into this larger global conflict seemingly kind of out of evolving rather quickly so i imagine that that not uncommon horror themes for the audiences at the time no really really not but also ones that we that german audiences would have been seen more traditionally placed within these sort of fantastical horror within fantastical settings, right? So yeah, like, so horror not uncommon to the actual audiences yes. within their life, but horror uncommon to how they're normally used to watching and being yes. distanced from horror. So maybe I wonder if that was um if that I want I kinda wanna know the I wish we could go back a hundred years, see yeah. the audience, general audience reaction. Because I would wonder if that would be a little awkward for that audience be like, uh oh, I recognize this Germany. Yeah, and and David Skull, who wrote a book called Hollywood Gothic, talks about the fact that that the film was drew some criticism for its use of natural rather than contrived settings because we have other films coming out again. Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is coming out in 1919, and that film feels it feels like you're in a dream, right? The proportions are off and the like lines are not quite as perpendicular as you expect them to be. And you don't look at it and you're like, that feels like a real place. But one of the interesting things about Nosferatu is how it alternates between Hutter having these very normal experiences and then Hutter having these nightmarish moments, right? Like every time I watch this film, I sort of one of my favorite scenes because it's just so goofy is when he's in his little nightgown and he's like looking yes. out the window waving and he's like, you know, got the most goobery smile on his face and the like guy who's way too far away to be able to see him is waving back. And I always think about like, why is that in this film? Because it, the pacing has to be so sharp. But I think it's because it is giving us that sense that Hutter is, is a man of our world, right? And our world is a world that we have decided is of order and science and, and some daylight. But what happens if that's not the only world out there? The other thing I find really interesting about some of the scholarship about Nosferatu is that there are multiple people that specifically, specifically about Nosferatu, but also sort of more generally about vampires, make a point of really drawing attention to the similarities between film and filmmaking and vampirism, which... Interesting. Yeah, because you and I talk a lot about film and and the other V, voyeurism, but it's right. it's, it's interesting to think about this. So uh, Angela Dallavachi, and this is a quote that Stacey Abbott has, says, Nosferatu's blood sucking, which drains the world of its vital forces, plays on the notion that cinema, the art of movement of life, may also be a form of death at work, with one image exhausting itself into the next. And I read someone else that talked about the idea of 
the cinema sort of like ghosts of the past being forced to constantly do the same actions again and again, right? Because every time we watch it, it's the same. And that, that also having that sort of similarity to the life of a, of a vampire. And I, what do you think? Do you, I want to buy it, but I don't know if I do. Definitely, like, I buy the argument, but I don't necessarily buy if it has any relation to this actual film. I, this seems definitely like a one of those cases of, like, oh, this is an idea that kind of makes sense. Like, vampires are creatures that suck life out of things. When you capture an image on film, it's not really alive anymore. It's preserved in that same captured form. In the same way that like vampires capture people, transform, although not in this movie. Yeah. Capture, which is why I don't know if I necessarily buy the argument. I buy it maybe largely with vampires in film, but maybe not with this film because, and then it repeats itself over and over again, stuck in that same form. So I think I see the connection with vampires in filmmaking, but I don't necessarily know if I see the connection to this film specifically, which is interesting that I think it keeps getting referenced so much within the scholarship. And I think it keeps getting referenced so much on the scholarship because in many ways, Nosferatu has become a shorthand for cinematic for vampires. Vamp- yeah, for cinematic vampires. See, I don't know if I necessarily buy that then as like you treating that as like a framework for viewing the film. I feel like that seems like maybe like a large a discussion worthy of having within the larger field of vampires. But it's weird that then it would get looped in with a film. That is like Nosferatu. I don't think is does is not really about that element, the pres- the preservation no. and repetition of vampirism that is that does become so prominently associated with vampires and even is in the original yes, Dracula yes. text. And so, like, I get the argument to apply that argument to Nosferatu seems like sorry, I don't know. It I, just I seems think, like a little bit of a stretch. I think the connection for me is is this idea that. Nosferatu is all about, Count Orlock in particular, is all about the next thing, right? So even though the film Hutter, all of his information is coming from, you know, the townspeople being like, maybe you shouldn't. And then from this, this dated book, Orlock wants to move, right? He wants to, to move right. to a more metropolitan area. He wants to move on to his next victim. And he wants to, you know, just do that next thing. And so I think in that way, there's a similarity to sort of the, the newness of a film and the potential of a film and what it can do. But you're right that the sort of lingering legacy that that is integral to almost every other vampire text, even things like Twilight, because, you know, right. Bella's like, change me. And he's like, I don't want to. I don't want to make anyone suffer this, right? Even when they're like conflicted about it, that really is absent from, from this film. And I think that's an important departure. And it's interesting that if it not being in the foundational text, it appears in almost every subsequent one. And I, I guess it really is just because they are two foundational texts yes. for, for the vampire. like. Uh, it's the original Bram Stoker's Dracula, and then this Nosferatu, which is, uh, I guess, like, gets lumped in the same camp due to it being an adaptation of the film and the first prominent cinematic adaptation. But there are so many differences between the two texts that it really is two different foundational points. And it seems interesting that they've been lumped together, yes. despite the fact that even Bram Stoker's estate didn't want this to be lumped together with the original Dracula. They pushed back against this be- this adaptation. To me, that that's the most interesting part of Nosferatu is that we have a film that's really about an hour and 20 minutes. And yet, because it's so Spartan in certain areas, because it is both 
an adaptation of Dracula and not an adaptation because it could be read as anti-Semitic or not, right? Like this is such a a text built for ambiguity in in all yeah. of the best ways. I, I agree. It definitely is. A, this is just a really difficult text, I think, to categorize, particularly because like for every like thing that it does that kind of like really checks the box of like vampires and what we know and what they come to develop as, it kind of does something else a little bit different too. Like in this version, sunlight kills vampires just like straight up right away. That is not the case in most other vampires. It's not even the case in the original Dracula mm-hmm. either. And so I think it's just like things like that that are just make this text liminal yes. and outside of categorization while at the same time providing so many of the basis for what we will go on to categorize as vampires. Because I mean, like the claws, the teeth, the kind of black wardrobe the setting of the house in transylvania Mm -hmm. that kind of aesthetic of it those are all seminal like parts of vampires that i think have definitely been redone throughout the years for their other filmmakers but there are then other elements that are kind of ignored from this from this nosferat this version of the text yes uh, in the adaptation process and i i think that what you're saying and sort of um, focusing on and count orlock is is so important because i think most people will agree that that the most striking image of of Nosferatu is Max Schreck as as the vampire. I, and... I mean, I, absolutely. Like, I don't under his performance and his, this, like the the makeup and the styling yes. and the the gradual so, elongation of the fingers, all of it. It's so incredibly arresting, visu- like visually arresting and striking. Yes, that. The film really just operates on another level, literally, when he is in the shot. Like, yes. when the camera is able to use him as, like, a vehicle to showcase you things about this world and this this situation, whenever he is on the screen, it just, it really adds. Because, uh, I I don't know, I did not look as much into the makeup and process as I maybe should have, but I would be incredibly interested to learn about those techniques because they still hold up a hundred years later. Yeah. So so Skull sa- says that the makeup is probably the invention of Albin Grau. The, the factors, features, Shrek's features, which that was his real name, uh, were built up with putty. There were bat-like ears, bat-like teeth. And of course he has the this padded costume that he's, right. and then the, his stiff halting gait. And, you know, I think about the casting and, and they really casted perfectly for Hutter because that gentleman is like constantly capable of the most goobery yeah nearly imbecile smiles right yeah. he's a little like round and soft not not fat he's just like squishy looking and yeah. and that's sta- and and he also is not exceptionally tall or anything like that and he moves very fluidly and then and then we have that contrasted with orlock who shrek makes it feel like Every time Orlock moves, he's having to like take the time to think, is it worth this movement? Right? It, it, he feels ancient in his movements. And that's really rather terrifying. And of course, I think, again, the the complexity of how Shrek depicts Orlock and how they chose to visually depict him has allowed us to have, Skull says, like all of these different universal fears and collective obsessions packed into one package. And he also says what you said, that like, we have a character that some have called the Shylock of the Carpathians, but we've also had other people argue that 
Orlock becomes a cinematic anticipation of Hitler, right? Like, and then Skull says, ugliness, it seems, is in the mind of the beholder, right? You can put so much is is not present that we can read it into Orlock in really fascinating ways. That is so fascinating. Both he is viewed as a Shylock and a Hitler figure simultaneously. That is so fascinating. Yeah. And then, of course, there's other people and leave it to... Uh, the French, too, who call Nosferatu a walking phallus. Uh, and that is... And so, okay, yeah. well, yeah, that is very French. Yeah, <laughs> and someone else says he has the rigidity of the corpse, but also this aggressive sexuality or abundant spectacular. I don't I don't know if I would call Orlock's actions aggressive sexuality, but again, that's I guess that's kind of the French for you. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's sensual. I think yes. that there is like... Not to give too much credit to like a lot of the phallicy reading of the of it, but I mean, there when you just have the elongated fingers and like that is definitely sensual. Yes, um, yes. As well as like just yeah. So I'm uh, not to give too much credit to the well, French here, but <laughs> it's a it's a it's a <laughs> pardon the pun an attractive reading uh, that I'm drawn it, to. It is, and and it is in part because of of how how the film ends, right? So right. at the towards the end of the film, everyone's like, I think we might have a plague. And and then Ellen sees the book and she figures it out, right? And so we have right. uh, another example of of what in like Victorian little literature is often seen as like the angel of the house, right? The person whose job it is, the woman whose job it is to to oversee the spiritual and moral well-being of the household. And and Ellen really sort of fits that role, right? She she has a solution and she's willing to do whatever it takes. And then yeah. we get some amazing shots, right? Like some of the best some of the best cinematography of this film happened in those final minutes with the interplays between shadows and then sunlight and you know, just I'm always amazed by the practical effects and the special effects that could be done with 1922 technology. Yeah, I was really loving all of the moments that you were just describing. And then it ended with like that little puff of the, the fog machine coming out. And I was like, that's funny. They, yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. we, every, like this incredible visual moment. And then it's like, you see the little fog come out from like a clear, like little, like foggy kind of machine. I was like, that's hilarious. You did this amazing shot thing, but then we still have similar technology to what we're working with nowadays to achieve this kind of effect that I you can see like seep into the into the shot. It was super cool. I was and it definitely works. It was an interesting moment too, not what I was expecting for him to die from the sunlight because I don't think I had in my mind vampires dying from sunlight because the, as I had mentioned earlier, just that was not. I know that vampires are not good in sunlight, but the death from it. It was an interesting adaptational choice here. And I think it worked really well. They got to use a lot of that natural lighting yes. in there. And it was one of the most effective uses of their, co- of like the uses of like the minimal color. Yes. Uh, obviously. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, they filmed all of the, the night scenes during the day and right. they just tinted them. And, and I think this film deserves to be recognized for what it does for vampires, but independent Murnau deserves to be recognized just for being a fantastic director. I absolutely think so, as well as just like the cinematography needs to, is is deserving of being studied for its long shots, as well as just like, I think the capturing of the multitude of different environments is really fascinating and ambitious about this film for the time that it was made in. I think just the fact it, it's on a, we were on a boat 
and for so much of it. And the fact that, like, they're able to capture this vastness and of, of the ocean during this time period with so much with so much clarity. And then all of the different locations in Transylvania, the castle, yes, but also the other locations that they visit, and then all of the this vast town of Germany. I think for a film with that is unauthorized and had such a kind of like tiny rushed budget and feel to it. Yeah. Uh, it is really able to pull off some truly masterful cinematic uh, feats. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned the the relatively small budget because it was. But interestingly enough, the publicity expenses seem to have exceeded the cost of producing the film. So there were like some That's funny. unmistakable lapse in judgment in terms of the, the budgeting. You know, so they didn't think there'd be any copyright problems because they acknowledged the film. They also had this elaborate right. premiere held at the Berlin Zoo. This was a big, big deal. Uh, initial critical reception and reactions were really positive. And what's interesting is Albin Grau, who I mentioned earlier, who probably helped with the, the design of the makeup for Orlock. He was the production designer and one of the producers. He also said uh, in a magazine piece as an advance to Nosferatu, he said, you no longer see the terror of the war in men's eyes. He's talking about World War I. But some part of it has remained. Suffering and regret have shaken men's souls and little by little inspired the desire to understand what caused this monstrous event that mm. swooped down on the earth like a cosmic vampire to drink the blood of millions. That's what that's that. There's that connection of the horror that had seemingly come out of nowhere for the German citizen. Like this film is exploring the horrors that lurk within society and what caught on, on the outskirts and what causes them to come into the town. Yes. And, which is an early articulation of a common source of horror that we talk, we're still talking about to this day. And so it's just absolutely a testament, I think, to how well they're able to capture just like this sense of horror with like a capital H. Yes. Um, yes. And articulate those universal fears because I mean a hundred years later we're still ta- able to talk about this because and I think it is because of those universal fears and the capital H horror that this film is playing towards yes rather than and and a hundred years later we are still having some of the same discussions about whether or not horror is profound and evocative or, quote, opiate for the masses. So there is a Marxist newspaper that was like, this is, you know, tricking the the worker in a supernatural fog through which he can no longer see concrete reality. And, you know, they're talking about the fact that, like, World War One was traumatic enough, and now there's all of this, quote, dangerous nonsense about spiritualism and the occult, to which millions of disturbed souls have fallen victim since the war. And they say, if these few lines suffice to put workers on the guard, not to give their money to a cinema that is going to show them a propaganda film financed by industry and intended to deaden their minds, the whole pretty plan will fail. And the phantom Nosferatu can well let himself be devoured by his own rats. And I just... Like, it's so dramatic. It's also so very Marxist. But I think that this is why the film continues to to resonate with us, because it is not just important for setting up vampires. It's it's historically significant for helping us understand how from the very start with full length films, we have used horror to have these deep thoughts. And we've had lots of people who say, no, no, there's no deep thoughts to be had. That's an interesting view of what horror of horror is. 
or is just a dis- is a distraction and meant to just like satiate the public. The interesting view from that from that magazine. It's certainly I don't know maybe they I definitely can see an argument to be made from it. Don't know if I don't know if I agree that it would totally dilute the working classes in spirit from watching horror or watching Nosferatu. Um, interesting argument for sure. And Nosferatu, I suppose, has stood the test of that argument. It's still, yeah. despite it, any of the naysayers, um, it's still around. We still watch yes. it. I People still watch it every year. I was reading, reading some commentators who Nosferatu is like their go-to Halloween of choice, movie of choices for so many people throughout the year that the year so clearly stood the test of time <laughs> and we are very very fortunate that the the film wasn't destroyed i, I or was just think- completely destroyed I was just thinking about that because i i know that so much of german art was destroyed during world war ii or just throughout this time period because it was such an intense economic period of like a low point for the country that so much was lost so how was it that this film was able to survive? Well, and we lost even more copies of it because Florence Stoker, Bram Stoker's widow, yeah, she when she handed the the matter over to her lawyers, because for the record, everyone simply citing that you drew inspiration from a text is not not the same thing as having copyright permissions. Even back what? in 19, I know, even back in nineteen twenty two, and so the. You can't just be like, you can't just drop a source in the chat. Yeah, I know. Isn't that that wild how that just doesn't work? So (laughs) all the prints, most of the prints were destroyed uh, in that process, too. So it's we're really lucky because as we've talked about with some other seminal texts, Nosferatu has, you know, dug its long, elongated fingers into into the heart of horror. I'm glad we did Nosferatu. We haven't really done very many like pre 1960s, even like pre 1970s horror, and, and it's it's interesting to see all the things that remain the same and and the ways in which you know it's a very uniquely a 1922 text. This was fun. This has definitely made me way more interested in revisiting other foundational texts. Like I'd really like to go revisit some, like maybe some like werewolf pieces. Now they briefly yes. mentioned werewolves in this yes. in this film. Love to revisit some like werewolf pieces. I've done. I feel like I personally, in my own personal experience, have done a lot with Frankenstein. But maybe some Frankenstein texts for for the show. Or some, or some other of the classic creatures. There are so many yes, uh, that we could are. go to on class and explore there, either in film or or in literature. Uh, but it was just so interesting because you're absolutely right. There are some things that have stuck around, and then of course there are some things that are distinctly 1922. Like it, it's hard to watch the films like this today because like so much of our modern problems and on horrors and things are just not able to be articulated at all like a lot of the problems i think of this film could have perhaps been avoided with like modern technology but that's like a my partner was like why don't you just like warn people that this guy is coming <laughs> to the town you know he's yeah. there like and it's like yeah i guess with like a cell phone you hutter just calls ahead and warns the town that this vampire has taken over a ship and it's coming in to taint them. But yes. you don't have that here. No. So distinctly 1922 yes. uh, in some regard. But wow, is it important in those in the tropes that have been able to survive from the film? 
And we hope that you enjoyed this, this foray into Nosferatu because we're sticking with it for a little bit longer. Um, yeah, so if you did not like it, um, <laughs> yeah. I am sorry. Yeah. I've got some bad <laughs> news for you. Because we're going to look at the <laughs> 1970s adaptation and then we're going to look at a film I've been waiting to watch for a really long time and that is Shadow of a Vampire, which is the fictional portrayal mm-hmm. of the making of the 1922 film. But before we get there, we are returning back to our examination which we are literally going to be doing for almost a year since it's every other episode of our friday the 13th franchise so tony what is our our next episode going to be on it's going to be on friday the 13th part two excellent so we hope that you will watch Friday, rewatch Friday the 13th, part two. We also wanted to let you know that we are coming up to our sort of like semi-quarterly examination of a book. And we are going to be looking at in end of July, August, somewhere around there. So start reading it now. A book called The Fervor. It's a night it's it came out this year in 2022. It's by Alma Katsu. And it's looking at she she writes a lot of historical horror, which is super exciting. And this one is particularly set during the World War II Japanese internment camps. So those of you that are reading, start reading on that because that episode will come out, I think, in I think in August. Tony, what else do people need to know? Well, they can get in contact with us via our social medias, which are in the description of this pod. Uh, or our email. Please let us know what you'd like to see. Let us know what you uh, liked from Nosferatu, if you've seen it, what you don't like about the text. We always love to hear from you. Please give us a review wherever you get your podcast. Just write a review. Give us five stars. Uh, It really (laughs) helps get us out there. I know presumptuous of me to assume five stars, but... Uh, you know, I just, uh, I'm a hope for the best. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> I, I just, every time you do that, it makes me laugh when you're like, so five star it. Uh, we also, yeah. <laughs> we also want to tell you if you are listening to this episode in May of 22, that it is still time. There's still time for you to join in on Monster Mayhem. You can head over to our website, suchanightmare.com to check it out. And as always, a deep Thank you to Jackson for editing this episode. Thank you, Jackson. Yes, thank you so much. And to all of you, thank you so much for listening to our nightmares. And have a spooktacular day.